the whole point of my platform is just to spread awareness and give people the resources and the confidence to leave their abusive relationship, whether it's a marriage or not, and know that brown people are much stronger than society leads them to be. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Anessa Tabassum, a nurse, advocate, and TikTok star. Anessa is an advocate for women experiencing domestic violence and the stigma of divorce, and has worked with organizations such as Safe Alliance and Girl Talk Inc. Her work draws from her own experience getting married at a young age and experiencing domestic violence at home. We talked about the feelings of shame and lokyakenge surrounding the divorce, how Islam played a role before and after, and of course, we talked about her TikTok page. Aside from her direct advocacy work, Anessa speaks about her story on TikTok. Her vulnerability has amassed her following of over 300,000 people, with some videos getting views in the millions. She shared the hilarious story behind why she started her page and calls out the music reference in her username. We also chat about the potential burden created by running a social media page around a heavy topic and how she keeps her sanity. Circling back, I mentioned that Anessa is a nurse practitioner. We talk about getting her master's in nursing and how that path is different from that of a doctor's. And about being Bangladeshi American. Some of y'all are wondering where Bangladesh is right now. I hope this episode will inspire you to look it up. Enjoy, enjoy. Anessa Tabassum. Welcome to Brown People We Know. My MBA went fully remote after COVID hit, but you're a nurse and you're in nursing school. So has your year really changed in terms of like what you're up to? Yeah, so I got my degree. I learned everything about nursing, about 120 hours of clinical hours on an online simulation. So, so, so bad. Oh my gosh, it was so bad. When I finally got thrown into the real world and started working, I'm like, I don't know how to interact with patients. I don't. You're not a computer simulation anymore. They moved nursing school online too? They did for a whole year. I finally started back again and I go to classes once a week. Well, I'm guessing your real patients were way more rude than your simulated (laughs) patients. Let me tell you, I work with children. I work with psych children and they're a very special population. I'll just say that. (laughs) Very special. What was your inspiration for being a nurse? You know, in a brown household, you guys, you're always just pushed towards healthcare. You know, I was really pushed into being a doctor, as everybody is. And, you know, I really did try to pursue it at some point until I realized I didn't want to anymore. I spent about two and a half years working alongside nurses. And then I just realized that I still want to be a prescriber, but I wanted to do it through the nursing route. And so eventually I started nursing school and I'm now in a master's program and hopefully one day I'll get my nurse practitioner's license, you know, and start prescribing and doing all that. So it's a long process, but I'm getting there. I was talking to a friend recently about the physician's assistant path and it seems like a better fit for him, but I think there's so much stigma around being a physician's assistant, being a nurse in South Asian communities, right? Like you have to be the doctor. So how different is it Getting your master's in nursing versus being an actual doctor. For people that are considering the path, like what are what are the differences between the two? The difference is it's a lot less schooling. 
And that's pretty much it. So nurse practitioners have almost exactly the same rights as a physician has. They get to see patients, they get to prescribe, and in most states, you don't have to be under a physician to practice. So you're a prescriber essentially, except you go the nursing way. So you go more of a holistic pathway. Nursing is just so different from like just medicine. Medicine doesn't treat people as people as much as nursing does. So that's the main difference. And also, obviously, it's a pay cut. That's why nurse practitioners are so high in demand. You get the same quality of care for half the price. So everyone wants a nurse practitioner in their practice. So that's about it. That's about the only difference. You can specialize into anything just like a physician. So I really do feel like it's about the same thing, but people don't know it. And especially in our community, people are like, oh, doctors above anything else. So it's really cool to like talk to people about being a nurse practitioner. Yeah. And that's a really great point about not knowing, right? When you're a kid, you know what a doctor is. When you first come to America as an immigrant, you know what a doctor is, but people don't really know about getting like their master's and as a nurse practitioner. Yeah, exactly. You don't know. You can you can do so much in this world. You just don't know yet. In a similar sense, so you're Bangladeshi. You're the first Bangladeshi that we've had on the show. Oh, I'm honored. <laughs> I think in America, like being Hispanic to some people in some places, being Hispanic can be synonymous with being Mexican. Being South Asian can be synonymous with being Indian. When you tell people that you're Bangladeshi, do they know what that is? Most people don't, actually. They really don't. They really don't know. And that's just how it's been my whole life. I'm not sure why. Even when I explain to people, oh, it's actually right by India, but it's not India. They're like, oh, so you're Indian. That's when I just don't know how to explain it even further. I'm like, it's a different country. That's it. It's really hard to explain to people. But that's what I'm here for. I'm trying to make it more well and well known. And I try to like say I'm Bengali as much as I can. because I need to get it out there. I will admit, even for me, it was a little bit confusing initially, because when we think of Bengali, there's the people that are in the state of Bengal in India, and then there's Bangladeshi people. So yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of unique. Did you grow up with Bangladeshi friends around you, Bangladeshi culture, or is it something that you've kind of had to hold through family? So you're right, actually, like the correct term for me is actually Bangladeshi. But even I say Bengali, because it's just easier. So actually, that's something really important to point out. I'm actually just Bangladeshi because Bengali is a more broader term. But growing up, yeah, Bengali people, we stick to other Bengali people. Like we find each other in the community and then we just stick together and we just throw a bunch of parties and we grow up like with their kids and stuff like that. So I grew up with a lot of Bengali people for sure. So I, I was really like proud of my own culture growing up. You're dating an Indian boyfriend right now. What part of India is he from? He's Gujarati, actually. So that was really interesting telling my parents. Honestly, after everything that happened in my past, I kind of decided that I just don't want any South Asian boy. You know, I was really afraid of it. And then I just happened to meet one that was really calm and nice and patient. And he ended up being Gujarati. Who would have thought, right? So yeah, I'm with an Indian boy. Coming back to that thing, the distinction between like being Bangladeshi and being Indian or being Gujarati, do you see a lot of cultural similarities or differences? There's a lot of cultural similarities, actually. I know I can't stay out late. You know, there are certain things I can do. There are certain things I can't wear. And then he's able to respect that because we're all just, you know, modesty is a huge part of our culture. As much as we agree with it or don't agree with it, as far as like leaving the house or even no matter how old you are, 
you know, there's just certain things that are disrespectful to your parents, like not telling them where you are, you know, not asking for their permission before you go on a trip. So I think there are just so many similarities between us. And especially because I'm Muslim and so is he. I think the religious aspect kind of ties the culture together as well. So I'm, I'm really lucky, lucky in that aspect. Definitely helps to have a shared cultural background. I find that like even if I'm speaking to a friend or with a partner that doesn't know it, maybe didn't grow up with it, some level of familiarity helps, right? They at least are aware that if you stay out too late, your parents will kill you or whatever. They will kill us. <laughs> they will. It doesn't get easier. I'm literally 25 and it's still like, hey, mom, can I go on this trip? Hey, mom, I know I live... Like, I don't even live with you anymore, but is it okay if I go, you know, across the country? So it's real. It's so bizarre. I still sometimes feel the need to ask my parents before I book a plane ticket somewhere. I know. I don't know why. I guess growing up, we couldn't do anything without their permission. And now it's just like a form of respect. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Just respect or, or something else. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> still trying to figure that one out. Fear. Yeah, true. So I do want to transition to your your story around domestic violence and divorce. And I feel like you've covered it pretty well on TikTok. So I, I don't want to go through all the details, but there was one line that you shared recently that really stuck to me. And kind of when we talk about culture, I think it's important to highlight the day before you left your previous husband, your father-in-law had said, do you realize how lucky you are that she's a Bengali woman? Can you elaborate on that? Why he said that? Definitely. And thank you so much for bringing it up in such like a calm and soothing way. That phrase has stuck with me since the moment he said it. It had such a profound impact on me because that was the first time in my head that I realized that I had the option to call the police. I did not even know that that was an option. It, for some reason, when everything was happening, it didn't even enter my head. Thinking back to it, it's just so bizarre. As somebody who's being abused, it's like, you don't think to call the police. It was just not in my radar. So when he said that, I was just like, oh, my God. First light bulb went in my head that I should have done it. And second of all, I felt really like he thinks I'm so weak. You know, he's taking my kindness, my respect for this family, my privacy and twisting it into weakness that, oh, she's not going to call the police. You got you really lucked out. So that's kind of everything that was going on through my head. Honestly, those words are what was able for me to finally say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do all these things. I have a right to all these things. And just because just because I know that they think I won't do this, I need to prove them wrong. You know, I need to prove myself right. So it still sticks to me to this day. And it's resonated with millions of people to this point. This is not my viewpoint. You know, this is the viewpoint of the older generation, even our current generation's viewpoint of how weak Asian women are, how we just should just tolerate these things. I'm not saying that white women always call the cops because they don't. They also don't as well. You know, so just highlighting what the, our generations of like men and women think of brown women was just so empowering. Yeah, it's interesting when we're navigating these conversations, because I think we'll speak to something from our experience and then people will say, well, it's not just South Asians or, and it's like, okay, hang on. We're speaking to it from what we went through. That's not to invalidate other experiences, but to your point, like you've been able to touch a lot of people, but as you said, abuse and divorce and a lot of these things aren't really spoken about in our community. 
we all face mental barriers, right? So when we're starting a business or whether we're leaving an abusive partner, there's like a sense of shame. Like Hasan Minaj talks about like the Lokya Kenge thing, oh, right? I love yeah. that one. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Did you have that fear when you were thinking about leaving? And did it turn out to be a real fear in the sense that Sometimes we worry about things that never end up coming. One of my favorite philosophers says we suffer more often in, in imagination than in reality. No, that's a really important question that you asked. And it's because when I was first going through it and everything was happening, my first thought was I could either move back to my hometown, the one that I just left before I got married, or I could start somewhere new. And the reason I wanted to start somewhere new is because I knew if I went back into that hometown, I would be faced with hundreds of people asking questions about your divorce, your this, and I was so scared. There's something empowering about starting new, but I was mostly scared of what people were going to say if I went back to my hometown. So really, I just felt like I was running away from all of it. And that first year that I was trying to recover and build my life back up, I laid low so much. I wouldn't talk to anyone. I was self-isolating myself. I was so ashamed of myself for getting a divorce that I didn't even let, I didn't even get a chance for other people to talk about me. You know what I mean? I just shut everybody else out because of my own shame. You know, meanwhile, if you really think about it, no one was worried about me. You know, no one was talking about me. No one's that bored. But we have so much internalized shame about this stuff. And honestly, when you're 22 years old and you're divorced, you have no one to relate to. No one in this community talks about it. And that's what the biggest thing that I started all this for is because, shoot, I know what it felt like to be young and alone and feel like no one else was going through this, when in reality, so many women are going through this at a young age. How did you handle just the logistics of it or the emotions of it? Like, where did you turn to for help and support during that time? Because I wouldn't even know what sort of lawyer do I get? Like, what are, you know, what else do I need to put in place? You know, now that I think about it, it's actually so funny because, I mean, in my head, it just feels like it was a complete comic. My family's, you know, was so supportive, but they had no idea what to do. They didn't know who to call. Your 22-year-old daughter is facing, like, she wants to file criminal charges. She want to file civil charges. You know, she wants a restraining order. They're just like, how do we do any of this? We had no idea. We had no money. We didn't know how to do it. All we knew was that we needed justice, something needed to happen, you know? So we started just calling like pro bono lawyers. I live in Austin, Texas, so all over Austin, Texas. And we started calling lawyers in California, which is where the incident took place. And, you know, we would get free advice from people. And eventually, like, I found a lawyer that I talked to who finally, who resonated with me. So I picked him. From then on, you know, I spent about 15 months interacting with this lawyer and a lot of people don't know, like, divorces are very expensive. Like, they are very expensive. It took me just as much money to get divorced as it did to, take, to get me married. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a lot of family support. It was actually a lot of borrowing money, you know, that I eventually paid off throughout the years. But that's how I started. I just started a Google search because I had no one to talk to and no one to turn to. And now I'm so knowledgeable about these things that I'm like, I must share everything. So that, that's kind of how I started. And uh, my family was a huge support for me. They, you know, they, they took me in, they helped me, you know, helped me get back on my feet. And so here I am. Were you doing social media before your divorce? <sighs> no, I actually was not doing social media before my divorce. 
I just didn't at all. I didn't know anything about social media. I would just post it on Instagram, like cute pictures and stuff like everyone does. The reason I'm asking is because I think being a content creator on social media, you have to have thick skin. You get all sorts of weird DMs and comments and, you know, those types of things. So do you think going through the process that you did, like this, the story of, you know, didn't want to go back to your hometown because you were afraid of what people might think and all that. Did that prepare you to kind of be on social media? Because you're at 300K TikTok followers right now. I'm seeing weirdness from like 2000 Instagram followers. I can only imagine what you're... Oh, gosh, you're absolutely right. I think going through what I did go through, I developed such a thick skin. I only posted when I was finally ready. Like, granted, it took me about two years to ever publicly talk about what happened to me. And before that, like, trust me, no one even knew I was divorced. That's how low-key I kept things. But after I worked and processed through things in my head and realized that I have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be stigmatized for... I was able to, basically, when, once I was able to stop shaming myself, I didn't take shit from anybody, basically. Excuse my language. But that's how it was. And yeah, let me tell you, I get I get hate comments every day, you know. I mean, they're mostly from men. And I'm just like, you're going through your own trauma. So I get it. It's fine. I've definitely developed a thick skin. And, you know, the bigger you get to, you'll realize, like, internet is so mean. Oh, my God. Internet is so mean. It's a very strange place. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I knew... But <laughs> as I grow this platform, I'm realizing yeah. how weird it really gets. They start dissing you from left to right, start dissing your mom. I'm like, wow, <laughs> don't take it personally. Yeah. Were there any other mental barriers that you had to fight through other than what other people will think? One of the things that I'm imagining is um, I think in Indian matchmaking or something, they talked about how it's more difficult to find someone after a divorce or... I've had friends that have gone through similar sorts of traumas and, and they still feel attached to the partner even when they leave. Were those the types of battles that you maybe also had to face? Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad you brought that up. One thing I did notice after I did get a divorce, and granted, I was married less than a year. I was not married long. You know, I got myself out of it like as quick as I possibly could. But I was 22 years old. And before I got married, as any brown woman would, we get a lot of rishtas constantly. We really do. It's not something to brag about. It's just something like if you're young and you're fertile, like you're going to get rishtas, right? And it's like the second I got a divorce, obviously all those rishtas disappeared. And then I started getting rishtas from like older divorced men. So that was my label all of a sudden. I was 22, but I was divorced. So I could only get rishtas from divorced men. And that kind of hit me. And that's when I realized, to hell with this society. It doesn't matter if you are married for two minutes or 20 years. If you're divorced, you're divorced and you're used. And that's it. Like, you can only you can only go after other people that have been divorced. So that was a big wake-up call into realizing I cannot give this society as much power as I was giving it before. Yeah, that's a thing that majorly shifted, you know, my thought over this current society for sure. And especially with the reason for your divorce, like domestic violence, you would expect people to be more empathetic. What do you think it was with your current boyfriend that, especially because he is also Indian, right? So he's a part of this culture. What was it about him that allowed him to see past that or maybe give you that empathy? I was really scared. First of all, I was really scared to like ever tell anybody I was interested in. So it took me a long time to trust somebody with that information. But I was really scared because... 
seeing how I was perceived in society, I'm like, no one's going to want me now. But that's just honestly, it was not the case because there are really like, there are good men out there. I'm such an advocate for good men. I've seen them. I've been raised by them. I'm friends with them. So men are in trash, in my opinion. So there are good men out there. And I think the reason was is that we started off as friends. And so he started off to get to know me. And I was able to confide in him before we were like romantically involved. And to him, it's like, you were just in a relationship like everyone else's these days. You just decided to tie the knot. It didn't work out. In my head, I just think of it as a bad breakup, and so does he, because I didn't even get the time to build a huge life with him or have a lot of assets with this other person. And I, I also think that's what differentiate between, like, men and, like, boys. They could see you as a whole person, and that's what I say to people that are divorced. I'm like, you'll find love again. You won't just find other divorced men. Like, people will see you as a whole person if they want to. I imagine those fears are probably much higher when you're in the situation or maybe exiting, but over time, hopefully you felt a lot of those fears kind of dissipate and go away. Yeah, absolutely. They've gone away. And you'll come to a point where it was just so long ago that you barely remember it. It's kind of crazy to say that, but like time just really heals everything. It's so powerful that you are sharing your story for that reason, because people see these fears, they have these fears, but they're able to see kind of the other side when they look at your story. Mm -hmm. Your TikTok tagline is one survivor helping another next to the Bangladeshi flag and the, <laughs> the Bangladesh flag and the American flag. It takes a lot of vulnerability to share what you have. So it's probably not as common of content as, as people might need. Do you think that your TikTok success comes from sharing the story that you shared? Or, you know, is it more just social media acumen that you had and, and you would have blown up either way? Honestly, I have no idea. But all I know is that I'm passionate about what I share and I'm confident about what I share. I think people do also follow me or support me just because of my confidence and my my ability not to stutter when I'm calling out stigmas in society. I think that's kind of the biggest thing. And a lot of people tell me, keep going, keep doing this, because there are not a lot of voices out there that young women can listen to right now. I mean, kudos to everyone else that does social media for like fashion, artwork. And I think that's a really hard niche to get into. But there's not a lot of us advocates out there. There really isn't. There aren't like a lot of huge names with like advocates. So I think that's another thing. Once I started gaining momentum, it's just really hard to stop because you're entering a niche no one's really been into. Did you expect to blow up? Because I just want to tell people that don't know, like, you're working full time as a nurse, you're going to school full time as a nurse. <laughs> and then I don't know, I guess you just were like sitting around. And you're like, what else? What else can I do? <laughs> so you decided to go on to TikTok and become an influencer as well. I mean, at the time, were you expecting to blow up? What, what like, why did you decide to start making TikToks? Okay, well, it's, it's such a funny story. But even before I started TikTok, I was highly into advocacy work. I used to volunteer at this domestic and sexual abuse shelter here in Austin, Texas called Safe Alliance. I highly recommend it. And I went through their volunteer advocacy training. And, you know, I met a lot of women that were fleeing and bringing their children in for shelter. So I was always really involved in the advocacy work. And I've always loved social media as well. So my boyfriend's little sister, she had just graduated from high school and she's like, hey, there's this new thing called TikTok. And I'm like, 
I will not download TikTok. You know, everyone before COVID hit just thought TikTok was a joke, including me. And so I made a bet with her and I'm like, I bet it's easy to get famous on there. So I got the account and I started posting. I'm like, oh my God, this is harder than I thought. And I started posting a lot of like random stuff that I wasn't passionate about. And then one day just for fun, you know, I was feeling really frustrated. So I shared a snippet of my story there. And then when that started resonating with people, I, I just, I just sat there shocked. Like, I felt like, oh, wow, I can, that's so weird. It just felt so good to connect with other people. Cause this is the first time I was talking to other people that went through similar experiences I did. And once I started that momentum, it was so hard to stop. So it really started off as a joke. I didn't even want to do this at first. But when it started, it's like, how do you stop? And the more women that I reached and the more stories I heard of other younger women who were like, hey, I was abused. I left. I thought I was alone, but I'm not alone anymore. And when they said that, I realized I wasn't alone anymore. So I just I couldn't stop after that. So I guess technically you won that bet, which I just want to point out. I majorly won that bet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if she's paid out yet, but you should definitely call her up after this if, if she oh hasn't. Oh my God, no. It's it's really funny because she's really the reason why I started my TikTok account. And now like in her school, she goes to UT Dallas and all her friends are just like, oh my God, you know her? And she's like, yeah, I basically helped her start her channel. <laughs> it's really funny because she gets clout because of me when really she's the one that helped me start it. True, true. Some of your videos get from 100K to a million views. And to your point, a lot of people are sending you messages. I have two questions about that. I'll just start with, what is your reaction to that when you, when you start getting these stories? I get a lot of sad stuff. Not gonna lie, because like, like I said, like I'm I'm in the abuse category, advocacy work. So I, I would say 50% of my messages are really sad, and I don't get through all the messages that I receive. And because just first of all, it's just not feasible. You know, I try to look at as many as I can, but I can't look through all of them. And a lot of them are very very heavy. I'll get emails from women that are seeking advice, and I'll get stuff like, "Hey, I'm being abused. Please help me." Like. It's really sad stuff, not going to lie. And so, you know, there came a certain point where I'm like, I can't do everything for everyone. And I have to look after my own mental health. But I also get a lot of really positive messages too, like keep going, keep doing your thing. And then I get a lot of hate messages too, which is a whole different section. But one thing that I've realized, one thing I realized is that, you know, even though I am an advocate, I unfortunately cannot give anyone real advice because I don't know their situation. That could also be very, very dangerous if I give the wrong advice and they end up in a very bad situation. So I always tell people to reach out to the resources in your community. You know, I'm like, okay, where do you live? Okay, I found these organizations, reach out to them. And that's that's all I can honestly say. And I can provide people a room to vent, but I'm just never in a position to give anyone advice through my DMs, unfortunately. I mean, that really touches on my second question, which is, you mentioned that it does get overwhelming at times, right? So for, for me, the, the first question that I had was, you're someone that went through this, which is why you can speak in such a way that people relate to it. But at the same time, I think if you're creating content and you're responding to messages, it can be hard to move on from the experience that you already had. Does that ever bother you? Or do you feel do you feel more empowered, I guess, doing this? Or are there times when you just kind of need to shut off and say, like, you know, I, I need my own space? Yeah, I, there's definitely times I feel like I need to shut all of this off. I've actually had people come up and say, you're a fraud. You talk so highly and you say you got out of these things, but you're not, you don't help everyone that seeks out help. 
And people have called me out on it saying, oh, like you're fake. You don't, you haven't replied to any of my messages. I needed your help. And, you know, in that instance, I have to take a step back and be like, I'm on this platform to spread awareness. I I can't, I cannot help. I'm one person, you know, there's 300,000 of you out there. I I simply cannot. And you have to just forgive yourself, honestly. Um, But I, I just feel like the whole point of my platform is just to spread awareness and give people the resources and the confidence to leave their abusive relationship, whether it's a marriage or not, and know that brown people are much stronger than society leads them to be. So I forgot the second part of your question, but that was the first part. No, 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 that, that was great. It goes back to, in my eyes, at the least, what you're doing is showing them the other side, showing them that there can be a positive end to that situation, because I think that robs so many people of confidence in walking out of a situation right that, like that, right, is that they're so concerned about the future. Part of why I'm asking these questions is because I also, as a content creator, when I first started, I felt the need to reply to every message. And, mm-hmm. you know, it did, t- it took its, its toll on me. And that was when I kind of stepped back and started to breathe and, <laughs> and stop responding to everything. Yeah, yeah. No, when you first start off, it's so exciting. You know, you're like, I'm going to reply to every message. Everyone took the time to do this. And I still value and I'm mostly able to read everything that everyone sends me. But like I said, sometimes I don't have the emotional capacity to, to reply. And just reading it was good for me. You got to forgive yourself, man. You really do. You're one person. You're just one person. You have your own mental health issues, you know? For sure. So, Anessa, it seems like religion played a huge role in your story. There was maybe a negative side to it. You've mentioned that early in the conversations with your previous husband, he used religion as a way to kind of pressure you into the marriage or manipulate you into the marriage. But there's also a lot of positivity when you were looking for closure on the situation. You went and spoke to your imam. Can you kind of speak about that conversation? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that this this is also a very important conversation in my life. And as far as me moving on, I used to wear the hijab I wore for about 10 years. And I was a semi-religious person. I'm not saying all hijabis are super religious, but I tried my best with wearing a hijab. And, you know, that, that was one of like the main things that he sought out after. He wanted somebody religious. And when I met him too, you know, it was really, it was really nice to know and confiding to know that he was a man of God. This is your previous husband, not the imam. Yeah. Yeah. My previous husband. And thinking that he was a man of God, I just thought this can't go wrong. You know, somebody who follows their religion so closely couldn't actually hurt me. So in that way, I just completely lost myself to it. I wasn't as educated about Islam as I should have been. That's why I encourage a lot of people to get really educated on it, know your rights, know what's right from wrong, and know how to fight for yourself. Because he would say a lot of things like, oh, Islam wants you to do this. So if you don't do this, you're against Islam. And that's how he would basically get me to do anything that he wanted. And it's really religious abuse is is really common in these situations. And so I got really close to my imam at the time. We both went to him for guidance. We went through counseling session before the marriage. And I got really close with my imam. And he's the one that finally performed the ceremony. So once the marriage had ended or once I had separated, I went to my imam four months later, knocked on his door. And I was just, I just started crying in front of him. And I started blaming him. I'm like, 
I trust in an Islam and this is what happens. This is the type of husband I get. How do you explain that? Explain that to me. And I started attacking the Imam. I was just so angry and oh, bless his heart. Like I was just a mess and he was there as a guidance. And there's this one thing that he said to me that finally helped me let go of the marriage because I still felt religiously married to this guy because I'd never spoken to him in person to end the marriage. And I was talking to this imam and he says to me, and I said, I had three daughters and I would not want any of them to be in the marriage that you're in right now. You did absolutely the right thing. You are religiously freed of him. You are not married to him. You can move on. Just hearing him say those words to me, knowing this man of God said he wouldn't even dare let one of his daughters be in a marriage like that. It gave me so much freedom to just move on. And unfortunately, um, he passed away last year. So that was actually a really, just a really sad time in my life as well. Because this imam really helped me like move forward with my life. And that's how I was able to kind of come back to Islam. When I finally started realizing what rights women really had, because we do have a lot of rights. I just didn't know at the time. Interesting the way you phrased it about getting educated about religion. The fact that the imam was educated about the religion probably enabled him to help you through that period. Do you feel like the experience in the last few years in your life has kind of changed your perception or your practice of Islam? I feel like before, because I had such an outward portrayal of my religion, you know, wearing hijab and being a lot more modest, I felt more pressured to fit a certain role in society rather than fit a certain role with you know my relationship with God himself. Whereas now my relationship with God is a lot more private. It's a lot less, what are people going to say outwardly? You know, no one can make assumptions about me and my relationship with God now just by looking at me. But it's become more that I trust, you know, having gone through what I do, I trust God a lot more than I did back in the day. And I realized like, it's humbled me so much. I realized a lot more that you just got to put your whole faith in God and just trust him. And I, I realize that more now, now that I went through like the state of like hating the religion. Mm -hmm. All I can comment on that is that I spiritually am just a lot more connected to my creator now than I was when I would outwardly portray my religion. So one of my friends in college, he was the head of the Student Muslim Association. MSA, of course. <laughs> MSA, yeah. And this dude is like, he's very religious. So he prays five times a day, but he was like a ninja. Like no one ever saw him go pray, like to the point where I was like, dude, I do not believe you pray five times a day. He found a way and whatnot. But, you know, as I've had conversations with him later, we would speak about the absence of prayer rooms and those types of things. And when I was younger, I had other friends that couldn't eat Skittles. So I'm kind of curious. I know you mentioned that you were more semi-religious earlier on and your relationship has deepened over time. But just growing up in a Western society, do you find it difficult to hold on to your religious roots? Oh, absolutely. It's so difficult, especially because I'm working, I'm going to school, I'm doing all this other stuff. So like, when do you pray? It's extremely difficult in this society to do it. But then it's also just about priorities. If you want to do it, you'll make time for it, just like you'll make time for school and you'll make time for everything else, you know, and if you can't, you got to make up for it somehow as well. So as you know, it's so hard to practice any sort of religion in current society, but you just got to try your best. You know, you're managing a busy schedule and you're finding a way to learn more about your religion to incorporate it. Do you have any tips for people? I think I'm 
able to stay a lot closer to my religion just through my relationship with my parents because my parents are still really religious you know my mom still wears a hijab my they both pray five times a day they're really religious people i mean they're really all about the five pillars of islam especially charity and so you know having that relationship with my parents meant that i could have even closer relationship with god as well and I think I think the best way to find God is through your parents. If you have that relationship with your parents, of course, you know, sometimes not everyone is lucky like that. And that's why I always keep my family. You know, I try to call them every single day. And, you know, my mom always checks up on me like, hey, did you pay zakat? Did you, you know, give money to charity? Did you pray today? Did you remember? Did you remember to thank God for everything that you have? And that's how I'm able to, even though I live apart from my parents, to connect with them, but to also connect to God as well. You know, you have to find a way other than yourself to keep yourself accountable with God and your spirituality as well. I don't go to the mosque, you know, just because I just don't, you know, I don't I don't have that habit. But I found another way to connect apart from, you know, going to the mosque. The community side of it, I think, is really important, whether that's your parents or friends or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I have just two more questions. The first one is, how else do you retain Bangladeshi culture? I think definitely through social media. I have connected with so many powerful like Bengali women out there that just helped me feel so prideful. And I encourage you to go out and just follow, you know, anyone that you see is like representing your culture. And even I follow just so many like Indian, Nepali people as well, like anyone, Sri Lankan as well, like anyone that represents your culture, you need to follow them. Don't just follow like the popular mainstream content creators. You need to really support your own people and watch them flourish. That's one way I was able to just be so proud of who I am and keep everything going is because I follow other content creators that look like me. Are those people that are Indian, Sri Lankan, of South Asian descent that live in the U.S.? Or are they people that are from the, the quote-unquote motherland? Oh, yeah, no, they actually all live in the U.S. They do live in the U.S. So I'm able to see like people that are trying to preserve their own culture in the current Western culture. You know, I think that's also really important to highlight. I, I think it's pretty easy being proud of your own culture when you're actually in that nation. Yeah. Would you consider yourself more American or more Bangladeshi? I, unfortunately, I'm a lot more American than I would hope to be. That's just kind of how it is. Like my older sister, purely Bangladeshi. She just screams Bangladeshi, you know, when you see her. I love her for that, but I'm unfortunately a lot more westernized, and that's why, just to compensate for it, I try to like post more of it on my social media. Because hey, if I don't, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose it. My kids won't even know Bangla when I have them when they grow up. So so I do it. I was gonna ask why you were saying unfortunately, but it sounds like part of it is just the retention across generations. Is there any anything else? I say unfortunately because I wish I knew more about my culture. I don't know how to read it. I don't know how to write it. I just have half Bengali, half English when I speak, and I'm I'm just so afraid that it's just going to go away, you know, something I'm so... I honestly started being more proud of it in my adulthood than I was as a kid, so now I'm just like, I don't want to lose it. I spent so many years kind of hiding from it, I don't want to lose it. I say unfortunately because I'm afraid that it's just going to die off. I can very much relate to that, especially like growing up in Wisconsin, Such, I, I, I didn't have that much of my South Asian culture around me, my Telugu culture around me. And so I've embraced it more recently. And I remember listening to another podcast and they were saying, I can have a conversation about personal development and just my emotions and my thoughts with someone in English, but 
I wouldn't be able to have that with my parents in Telugu because I just don't know the words. And so to then have to pass that on to my kids, it, it puts us in kind of a, a strange situation, right? So strange. It's so strange. You know, my, my best friend, she, she's also Telugu as well. I grew up with her and everything. And we talk about this all the time that we're just so afraid that we're just, we're just going to lose this. We're going to absolutely lose this. I'm honestly afraid to talk to people that are other, that are Bangladeshi as well. Because I'm afraid they're going to judge how I'm saying the words. And then I just end up not saying it. And I feel like the only people that can truly understand me are my parents. It's it's really scary. Goes back to the Lokiaking concept. Exactly. I'm like, they're going to judge me for not being Bengali enough. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, on that cheery note, Anessa, where can people find you online if they want to follow your work? Yeah, definitely. So my username is OVO underscore NESA. OVO, a lot of people might recognize as Drake's um, label. Unfortunately, that's where it started. And now I just can't change my name because I've gotten too big to just completely change my username. So it's OVO Nessa. Um, that's my name on YouTube, my name on Instagram, my name on TikTok, just to keep it the same. And so that's how people can find me. That's hilarious. I feel like Drake should be paying you royalties for marketing. They should. They should. Oh, my gosh. I'm just, everyone's like, what's OVO? I'm like... At this point, it's, it's nothing related to me. I just really like Drake. <laughs> Don't we all? I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for coming on. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting. Absolutely. It was really nice to meet you today. Thank you so much for having me on and being somebody so easy to talk to. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.